Yes, good. Welcome to Book Club. Brain scrambled actually by, you know, being 14, 13 minutes late. <laughs> it scrambled the price your, of something your, your Teutonic mind exactly. is, is, is behind time. So, welcome to Book Club, the show where every week we reconstruct, deconstruct, put together, and generally slaughter, and sometimes even praise uh, an absolutely excellent or sometimes dismal business and sales book. We're currently on chapter two. So tell me, Jonathan, who is you, you were on about? Some mega guy. Yeah, yeah. CEO so, of Dropbox or something. Yeah, so uh, if you are a fan of the Tim Ferriss show and the Tim Ferriss podcast, um, I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast the other day. He had Drew Houston as the CEO of Dropbox. Good podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an A-list guest on the podcast, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and he was talking to Drew Houston uh, about top books he recommends, and obviously he recommended Principles by Ray Dalio, which everybody recommends. But one of the other books that Drew Houston recommended was The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker, um, which I thought was quite fascinating, really. Uh, and what he basically, the point he was making was, he'd said, one, paraphrasing, he, one minute, you know, He's a smart, bright, I think MIT grad with an idea about how useless USB drives are. And the next minute, he's running a massively leveraged venture capital-backed business that seems to become a multi-billion dollar global corporation. And he's, to be fair to him, the guy's still the CEO. So he's clearly a bright lad, but he basically said that the principles laid out for effective executive are really guiding principles for him as a leader of the business. Right. So... Maybe you and I just a bit tick. And we that might be a, it. We're a bit tick, and we didn't go to MIT. And we're missing the point. I think but, I could have gone to MIT. It was either between <laughs> MIT or Hull. <laughs> yeah, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, MIT, Hull. Hull. I chose yeah. Hull. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think we'll, let's get into it. We, we in the first chapter, what we really get got out of chapter one is he talks a lot about how effectiveness can be learned, and then I did say at the end of it before we came to this next chapter, the thing I was looking forward to the most was. Actually, in chapters two, three, four, five onwards, he gets into some real nitty gritty of what it's all about. Yeah. Um, and so, chapter two, we're going to plough through this one this week. We're going to chapters chapters two and three. Aren't I we? think there's more to chapter two than there is to chapter two. Yeah, but well, let's plough through both this week, okay. um, and then we'll get to chapter four next week. So, chapter two is called Know Thy Time. Um, so, over to you, MP. Well, I mean, the basic principle, which you could have summed up in a paragraph, is a very good one, which which is about knowing what you're doing with your time and money, and yeah. about recording your time. Yeah. And, you know, I think he's absolutely 100% on the money with that. Because, and I tell you, there's a real bugger for this, he's linked in. I, I really stopped myself with it now, because I've fallen into the trap so many times previously of looking at LinkedIn, never been looking at it for five minutes and not done anything. Well, actually, LinkedIn is a time thief in, in an immense way. You go onto LinkedIn. But that's the point. If you record, you go onto LinkedIn to look up the candidate's name. If you're a bit tired, you're a bit, you've had a long week. Just the algorithm's so clever. The algorithm is so clever. Before you know it, you've looked at five other things and then you've got, what the hell did I come here for? Everyone does that. But actually, that's sort of in the modern world. What Drucker's talking about is Drucker is saying, what's your task? What have you got to do? And uh, record and manage your time around it. Now, now, I actually think that he's absolutely right on the money with no, that. I couldn't agree more. He, he, there's a couple of things I got out of this, and I got an awful lot out of this chapter. 
And I think one of the things that I got out of this was a long time ago, I used to use an app. Interestingly, as recommended by Tim Ferriss, uh, again, um, I used to use an app called Rescue Time. Right. Now, Rescue Time is an app that sits on your Mac or your PC, and it just clocks what you're doing all the time. And if you set it up right, it'll basically tell you where your time's gone, what apps, what websites you've been using, um, including incognito browser windows, my iPhone now. Um, and uh, it basically will let you look at your week at the end of it, and you'll realize what has happened hasn't been productive time well spent. And I stopped using it a couple of years ago, which is weird. I don't know why I stopped using it, because it's an incredibly useful piece of kit. Um, and I've actually installed some time tracking software since reading this chapter a few weeks ago on my PC. And I have to tell you, it's been an incredibly enlightening experience. It's frightening, isn't it? Because I'll yeah. tell you the man who was good at it, actually, was Steve Griffith. I always thought, Griffith, if you're watching this, which I think is un unlikely, but I always thought Griffith used to pitch up to Howard Jackson leads about 10 o'clock, wander off at 3 o'clock and not do any work. But actually, he used to do loads of work on his then. He's very effective with his time. That really loads of work. So it, it's a, and, it, and Drucker himself is very keen on this about um, dividing time and knowing where your time actually goes. And like, for example, I've worked on one project this week. We were just having a meeting about yeah, yeah. that. I, I am, I'm 13 hours down on that project then. And actually, you know, if you look at my bill, just looking at that at a billable level, but hold on a minute, we've invested a lot of money in this now. I wonder, I wonder it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, if um, the sales reps that we deal with did a time tracking exercise, how much time they spend in their car. Yeah, time in your car. Versus talking to people. Because, you know, I've got a client, Jacob Wardrop, um, who, you know, his sales team are quite internally focused. And actually, you know, you've got the Irish companies that are quite internally focused. I can see how the internal sales reps in those companies generate more income than the external sales reps that we have. Because the internal sales reps are at the grindstone all the time. Okay. Well, do you know how much time I've spent this week on actual new business client acquisition selling time? Look at your client list, not much. Uh, I've spent, hey, <laughs> I spent less than an hour. Mad that, isn't it? Less than an hour. But I bet you've, bet you've done some work this week. Oh, what an ass up this week. But anyway, so getting so back to the book, so I agree with Drucker, but, yeah. but uh, he, he talks about the tender, loving care of time. Um, clumsily, he words it, of course. Yeah, but there's some, I think there's some really good stuff in here. That, 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 you know, he tells this story. Um, Are you going to say the one about General Motors? Go on, tell me the one about General Alfred Motors. Alfred P. Sloan, Jr., former head, former head of General Motors, the world's largest manufacturing company, was reported never to have made a personnel direct decision the first time it came up. He made a tentative judgment and then took several hours as a rule. Good luck with that. I don't know, uh, I think he was fairly successful. Yeah, he's in general motors. Um, there's just different bits. He, you know, he talks about part one, time demands of the executive and things that affect time. He says, to be effective, every knowledge worker, and especially every executive, therefore, needs to be able to dispose of time in fairly large chunks. To have small dibs and dumps of his time at his disposal will not be sufficient even to total to impress a number of hours. And it's, this has really got me thinking a lot about Disciplines that I've always had, but it reminded me about the phone. Like time blocking, just blocking time out to do important stuff right. and not letting anything encroach on that time. To spend a few minutes with people is simply not productive. If one wants to get any cross, anything across, one has to spend a fairly large minimum quantum of time. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't that. know, it's interesting. I've just been on a con call with a client, as you know, 
and he and I don't really talk willy-nilly. When... There's no small talk. No, no, not that. What I mean is, we don't talk much during the week, but it sends me a meeting request for half an hour just because just because everything we've got to discuss. And it's quality and we're focused time. on it. It's high quality time. Yeah. Another another part of this chapter that I thought was a nice paragraph actually is I have yet to see an executive, regardless of rank or station, who could not consign something like a quarter of the demands on his time to the waste paper basket without anybody noticing their disappearance. So we know again. Well I can read the read the paragraph, I'll tell you what he said. He said, basically, if you look at most people, there's a quarter of the time that they spend, they could just put it in the bin and nobody would notice. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I thought, you know, he's right. I, I, well, I think we see a lot of people, don't we, that are wasting time. I, I mean, I, I'm going back to LinkedIn again. The amount of guys I see on LinkedIn where they sort of got into this habit of thinking, I'm on LinkedIn, it looks like Well, what, well what are your favourite type of sales guys? My favourite type of sales people are people that qualify heavily. Because the ones that qualify heavily never waste any time on bad stuff. Yeah, they value their time. Absolutely. So they give tender loving care of their time, I think is the, is the, is the phrase trucking in. So where they could give three or four hours on interruption to the company, obviously, they find that it was indeed so simple. They need to explain, here you go, that's right. Um, there's a point here he made about slow. Few executives make personnel decisions of such impact, but all effective executives I have occasion to observe. Learn that they have to give several hours of continuous uninterrupted thought to decisions on people that they come up with you, you said. Yeah. I don't know, I just think that's an alternate universe. Mm. And then he, he, he talks more about people decisions are time consuming for the simple reason that the good Lord did not create people's resources for organisations. They do not come in the proper size and shape of the tasks that have to be done in organisations, and they cannot be machined down or recast for these tasks. People are almost always almost fit at best. To get the work done with people with no one who's also therefore requires a lot of time. So I didn't quite buy that. And then he goes into part two of this where he talks about time diagnosis. That one has to record time before one can know where it goes and in turn one can manage manage it. And I, and I like I say, we've talked about this. Um, brilliant. And then he gives a few key points. One, identify and eliminate the things that need not be done at all. Well, that's what I was just talking about. Yeah, total an elimination diet, isn't it, almost? Yeah, yeah. Almost like finding allergies in a kid. Just eliminate it one by one, and you'll soon work out what the real time can, time thief is. And I think every single one of us has a time thief. Inevitably, yeah. Mine is bbc.co.uk forward slash good food. No, I disagree with that. We have a rule in our house, which is some food is good for your body and some food is good for your soul. And actually, I was talking to Lauren about this a minute ago. Lauren said to me, "Do you listen to audio books in the car?" I said, "No, I listen to heart radio." Because actually, at some, well, at some point, you might need to switch on. Yes. So if you were to put a perfect time diagnosis, part of that mixer would be not think about work and let your mind empty. Actually, part. So of actually, rugby really league probably isn't it? Yeah, part of being part of actually being productive time is doing something mindless, like listening to heart radio. Oh, whatever. Yeah, you've got to do something to let yeah. your mind clear. Actually, but there is stuff in our daily work that we waste. You know, an awful lot of time on. Yeah, and then you've got here, next question, which of the activities on my time log could be done by somebody else just as well, if not better? Yeah, we've, been, we've had quite a bit more meetings this afternoon talking about that very thing, haven't we? We have, yeah, yeah. Um, and he says, but I've never seen an executive confronted with his time record who did not rapidly acquire the habit of pushing at other people everything he did not need to do personally, which I think is, is bang right. And uh, I think what he's talking about is how we can all become a bottleneck. Yes, he is, yeah. And, and again, we've talked, funnily enough, one of the key subjects of this afternoon's conversation was about bottlenecks and, 
and how we can create proper ones. I, th I think what Drucker wants you to do in this chapter, ideally, is to um, monitor your time all, all of the, you know, for a day or a week or whatever, and then look at, and then you could get rid of 25% of the stuff that you do. Yeah. And actually turn us into robots. Really. Well, I'm two, three weeks now into, into recording time. Part of the discipline is recording time. Yes. Well, That's it, takes a time, big... it takes time. Well, the app I'm using is pretty neat, actually. It doesn't take much time. But the discipline of, okay, I'm on client project X and changing the system to record time. on. So every client project I'm working on, I'm swapping the time recorder so I can think, oh, well, I spent that many hours on that, that many hours on that. Well, your problem is said is mine is somebody's going to phone you at some point. Yeah, and then I have to switch the time recorder to something else. So there's no perfect way of doing it. Mm -hmm. What this does is it has a little bucket behind it where it's recording what's going on on the PC. That's clever. So I can then go back and it will show me what I was looking at, what I was working on, and so on. So that's really neat to have to say, if there's anything I've got out of this, that's been an amazing exercise. And I'm already starting to see a few patterns. So I thought this well, was interesting. Yeah. I don't know what page you're on. I'm on page 40. Time wastes often result in overstaffing. My first grade arithmetic primer, I mean, some is language, come on. <laughs> but my first grade arithmetic primer asks, if it takes two ditch diggers two days to dig a ditch, how long would it take four ditch diggers? And, I mean, I'll summarise this bit for you. You said something ages ago to me, Jonathan, which was right, which is people fill the available time. Oh, yeah, and there's a, there's a law for that, isn't there? Yeah. Work yeah. expands to fill the available time. And sort of he says that, but it's much more comes away, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's 100% right about absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, I wrote here, Emis was always overstaffed. You reckon? Oh, just as you've got one guy to flush the toilet, another guy to wipe the seat, another guy... Well, they do sell for healthcare, Mark. Yeah, another guy to close the door. It's just, it was always a very bloated business, full of bloated people justifying their existence, as I always felt. You could have been much leaner, more aggressive down those business. But hey, it floated for shit, loads of money. And well, the people that floated made yeah, a lot. Absolutely. But uh, even there's, there's something that I think is very useful here, is he talks about spending time and actually using, getting people conscious of the word spending. Yes, I agree with that completely. If you put a value on your time, would you have got a good value would out you of it? spend your time on that? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. As in, in the same way you spend money, you've only got. Well, so you've got an opportunity cost, haven't you? Yeah, and I think that's really the other. The other bit he says here is another common time waste is malorganisation with symptoms and excessive meetings. Couldn't agree more. I hate the meeting culture. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah. Well, I know you're you're a hard man to get to go to a meeting. I am. Yes. Why am I going? Why is it? What do you want me there for? That do I have to be there. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, but, but as a result, you do get a lot done, mate. Um, and, I, and I do really like this. He says, meetings should never be allowed to become the main demand on the Yes, I circled that bit as well. Yeah, that exact bit, yeah. Too many meetings speak to poor structure of jobs and the wrong organisational components. Too many meetings signify that the work should be in one job or in one component is spread over several jobs or several components. Partly agree with that, partly don't. Um, I think some people have jobs that mean that they have to be in meetings. Some people should be making other people. I think a lot meetings. of people that are in meetings think they're busy. Yes, they, well, they're just about their existence. You know, lots of meetings about this and meetings about that. Uh, and then the, the, I, I've put here the, the last major time I suppose malfunctioning information. Oh, I underline that as well, actually. And I wrote here a badly qualified leader appointment. Yeah. 
And then you move on to consolidating discretionary time. The executive who records and analyzes his time and then attempts to manage it can determine how much he has for his important tasks. How much time is there for discretionary, i.e. available for big tasks that will really make a contribution? And I've got to say, I really, I'm going to stop talking about how much I hate how badly this book is written. Or, no, not badly. How much the way the book is written doesn't suit the way I want to consume the information. But it does make some fairly good points, I think. And that's a bang-on point. And I think lots of other writers have written about that in lots of different metaphorical ways about big rocks, little rocks. Um, and what he's basically saying is, at some point, the big tasks that really make a contribution, the big rocks, as Stephen Covey calls them, yes. if you're really aware of where your time is, then you can sit down and start blocking time out for the stuff that actually truly makes a difference to the way you're, you're doing your work and the business. That's a good point. You know, he's absolutely in terms of uh, managing the time. But, I mean, it is hard work to read. Yeah. It's hard work. I mean, properly hard work. I found myself drifting off after half a page, really. Chapter three, what can I contribute? This was good, actually. And, yeah. I mean, we had a little preamble before we got online. I know you were as positive about this, I didn't think. But I liked chapter three, actually. And chapter three, what it's all talking about is the effective executive focuses on contribution. And I did really like the sentiment behind that. Well, it's funny, isn't it? So to give anybody who's listening or watching a bit of context here, um, Mike and I do some work with a coach, a fellow called Mark Rimmington. Uh, we just had, a, on a Friday afternoon, we had a session with Mark. We were just talking about, but we're floating, um, potentially changing some of our roles in the business mm -hmm. and some of our function, mine and Mike's function a little bit within our own business. And I actually said, or oh, that would mean I would be doing less client contact. I'm not sure how I personally cope with that psychologically. I'd really miss that. And then I actually said, well, actually, it would be more about what we can contribute. And actually, we started quoting Peter Drucker, did we not? We did, yeah. And what basically I think he's written in 30 odd pages, the general point is, he said, most executives tend to focus downwards. They're, and he says here, they're occupied with effort rather than with results. They worry of what the organisation and their superiors owe them should do for them. And they're conscious of all of the authority that they should have. As a result, they render themselves ineffectual. And what he's basically saying is, if all you're thinking about is, for example, if you're a sales leader and the only thing you think about is your number, then it's quite a narrow frame of thought. Whereas if, for example, you sell software to hospitals and what you're thinking is, how many times can we contribute to patient care this year? Then it will affect the way you think. Or, Do you think that? I didn't really read yes. it like that. So, what he's saying is, what is the big picture contribution you can make in your role? And what he's talking about is seeing the bigger picture in both in terms of the organisation and possibly even outside the organisation with, with the work that you do. So, if, for example, you work in the finance department and I say to you, What do you do? Um, and you say, I do purchase order processing. Then the only thing you're ever going to really do is purchase order processing. But if what you say is, I make sure that our relationship with our suppliers runs smoothly and helpfully so that our suppliers can make our business more effective, you might actually go an extra mile to be more effective. And what he's saying is there's a mindset of looking at the bigger picture from a contribution perspective. Have I mis misunderstood that? I think you might have. I think you might have. Understood it differently to me, that was quite. I think you might have understood it more correctly than me, actually. Right. In fairness. 
So what he's saying is you can't just be a function. You, you have to look at what your contribution is to the wider organisation. You, you, might, you might be right there. Um, I hope you are right, because if you are right, your point's better than his. Um, <laughs> I like the point you made here about keeping it simple at Amy for one goal. Uh, and he quoted British Airways, so I'm trying to find it now. In terms of uh, one example is the performance, or rather, lack of performance of uh, of the nationalised airlines of Great Britain. They're supposed to run as a business. They're supposed to be run as an in instrument of British national policy and Commonwealth co cohesion. But they have been largely largely run to keep the British air aircraft industry alive. Whipsawed between three different concepts of direct results. They have done poorly in respect of all three things. And I quite like what he was saying there, because if you read the other bit, he was saying, focus on one thing first and make it right. Focus on the next thing first and make it right. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a good... I mean, I've got to say, I like this chapter, actually. Good, good. I mean, I found with this chapter there was a lot to read, but I've not highlighted a lot. Yeah, he talks about getting the right human relations, making the specialist effective. But in reality, I think... What do you think about how to make the specialist effective? Because I'll tell you what went through my mind was that I think the IT market is splitting down now into more, individual more. component, individual skill sets. So in the olden days, you'd have somebody that sold you know, ERP software and they sold finance software and BI software and CRM software. But the bigger the IT industry gets, the more it splits down into individual component parts. And I think the SaaS, the nature of the SaaS cloud makes it easier to integrate across different technology functions. And we're seeing that more and more, actually. Yeah, I, I concur. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, 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 there's a couple of good quotes here. So I like this one. Executives who take responsibility for contribution in their own work will, as a rule, demand that their subordinates take responsibility too. So what he's saying is if I take my job and I take responsibility for my job as a bigger picture gig and I look at the bigger picture, then I will ask my people what are the contributions which this organisation and I, your superior, should hold you accountable for, rather than just necessarily results, and therefore we will be more effective as a result. And I kind of get that. I do get that. You know, I look back at... Yes, I like that. Do you, do you remember when we worked at the Jackets? The only thing that mattered was 10 companies covered a week. It was, yeah. That was it. That was the only thing that mattered. How many companies covered in your office? I remember once it was so target driven and so accountable about the small picture. I had a fellow work for, for me in my team called Chris Scott, and he had a number, he had a, a nine job spec a week target. And my manager at the time, he would call that a broken with that target. He was a tough character as well. And he was a tough lad, and he was a, it turned him into a basket case that target. I remember my manager at the time said to me, you may as well just tattoo a reverse number nine on the poor lad's head because the only thing he sees is that number nine. And do you think that made him less effective? Yeah, I do. I think that thinking about this now, I think it's a really interesting because we work in a sales world. In other jobs, it's a lot easier to make people think of big picture contributions. Oh, I don't know. They're trying to make you think of small picture contributions. The fellow who lives up the street from me, his wife, um, it's something to do with the running of any departments. And actually, if you talk to her about it, she knows about, you know, a lot about computer software, they monitor each thing so closely it's unbelievable. Really? In terms of how long the patient is at reception or 
you know, whatever it is. And they've got the technology area is moving as the technology is moving us into that, I think. But it's interesting because he talks, he actually gives an example of a healthcare example in the book. I know, yeah. Where he talks about actually at one particular nurse who was highly revered in the hospital, who the only thing she cared about was how well can we care for patients in this yeah, 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 exactly. Can we deliver the best possible human care? Whereas actually NHS is saying and the health secretary is saying actually let's go small picture, let's get apps, let's get let's get them out of the A and E department. Because I always sort of feel sorry for actually that, that particularly the public sector. So so you know that you know your daughter's just done a GCSEs. Are they still called GCSEs? Yeah, general certificates of secondary education. So the government, you know, misers schools and students about GCSEs. But then on the one and they're doing that on the one hand that I think they're right to do that. But then on the other hand, we're yeah. the kids under too much pressure. And also, is it an effective strategy? Is it an effective education strategy? Well, you got to measure it because actually, because actually, it's small picture, isn't it? It's, oh, how many one, how many nines and eights did the kid get? Actually, nobody's asking the big picture. Big picture, which is, is this kid ready for the wider world? Yeah, how socially adjusted are they? Yeah. How happy are they? And uh, how many teachers are look? How many teachers look at the small picture of Christ? I just need to make sure that I get half this class through this exam. And how many of them are sat there? Well, a lot of have to do that though because Correct. they because they, they get chastised for not doing it. Correct, because the only because the, they, they they have no choice but to think about that. And that sort of Drucker's point actually, but I did yeah. I did like it. Um, what is it right now? Here we are. So I like this actually. I don't know what page on this is page sixty three. The focus on contribution, i.e. your individual contribution, leads to a communication sideways and thereby makes teamwork possible. The question. Who has to use my output for, for it, it to become, become effective? effective? I thought that was a good question, that. Yeah. Well, I think we're, you know, we're, we're, we, we as leaders, have, we've experienced very small picture thinking and, and small contribution thinking, haven't we? And actually, that other thought of, well, who's got to use my output? As we go into our scaling program now, mm getting people to think well actually that's a piece of work you're passing to that colleague there and getting people thinking about who's got to use your output what's it going to look like what's it going to feel like how do they want it you yeah. know it's, it's like a ball being passed down a rugby like down the line in a game of rugby isn't it at some point somebody's got to catch and pass yeah absolutely great. The and the next one then so individual self-development in large measure depends on the focus on contribution so what he's saying is if your focus is about your contribution, then there's a greater life Yeah. So if you're focused on your contribution rather than your result, you'll be bothered about self-development. You'll just grow by default. Is that pretty much what he's saying? Yeah. So you focus on contribution but to the organisation. then he goes on to say, what self-development do I need? So i.e. you, Johnny Graham, are sat there, you focus on your own contribution, you're trying to develop yourself, not quite getting to the level of contribution that you want. If you're focusing on your level of contribution enough, you will be introspective enough to think, how do I develop myself to get to that level of contribution? Yes. No, as, I don't think as opposed, of that. no, I don't. I, I concur, actually. And often, you know, how often have we lamented? Well, let's get it right. How often have you and I lamented as leaders the fact that people haven't personally developed themselves? But actually, if we look back at iterations of our own business at the time, those people were in very results-focused, not contribution-focused environments. I think they're the same. What results and contribution? I do in this context, yeah. Whereas if 
Yes. It's, well, in how, how do you focus somebody on results and improvement? I've always liked to say I really help people with their lives, I change lives, change careers. That's a bigger contribution than I play salesman in the IT industry. It's a subtle but big differentiator. I don't know what I, I don't know how I think about that actually. It will be difficult because you'll feel like it's pretentious. I do feel it's pretentious, yeah. How well read. Yeah, that, that will feel very pretentious to you. Probably. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but what Drucker is saying is actually a, a, a good leader would get people to think about actually what you're really doing is you, you're driving the economy of Great Britain. I like the other one where he says the executive who focuses on contribution also stimulates others to develop themselves, whether they are subordinates, colleagues, or superiors. Yes, that it rubs off. It becomes, yeah. it becomes, it becomes a winning culture. Yeah, it does. And, if you're, and if you're walking around your business all day talking about bigger contribution and how we can make that contribution, then at some point others will do so too. And he actually gives a really great anecdote, doesn't he, of this CEO. Oh, he gives an anecdote. <laughs> there's, a, there's an anecdote of some CEO, who's a reluctant CEO, who was an accountant, bean counter, yeah, yeah. and comes into the business uh, as the CEO by default because the other CEO dies unexpectedly and his contribution focuses on uh, the development of the younger people around him to ensure that he's sort of backed up to cover his own failings and how the business then thrives as a result of his obsessive, obsessive determination to ensure that there are a much more effective succession plan within the business. Mm -hmm. uh, and that desire on his part to create that succession plan drove success in the business in general because so many people developed and created an entrepreneurial culture and business. Great. My great I that's and that's you know that's why I sort started liking this. So and the last thing I underlined go ahead is the effective meeting. Ah I underlined the same thing. So I've got to tell you in this meeting sort of culture you can have so many meetings that are just absolutely the drift the drift I, you know I moved house I can't what it was now about three years ago. And for some reason, we had to go meet this, this lawyer. I mean, but I'll give you a better example, actually. So my financial advisor, Dom, if you're watching, Dom knows me now. Dom and I have 10-minute meetings. Yeah. And when he first came, you know, first started dealing with me, a long time ago, he say, hi, Mike, how are you? How are your family? You know what I said to him. I, said to him, Dom, I don't I need to do such a pre-face. I'm not interested, Dom. He looked at me as if, listen, Dom, you're a financial advisor. I don't care about how you think about my family. We'll come here to discuss that. I may have 10 minute meetings now. Well, how many clients have we both got like that? That like that? I had one actually with a big SAP consulting house about, I don't know, a month ago. Well, before I went older, so maybe three weeks ago. And um, he, I mean, he was dry. <laughs> we did the meeting after about 30 minutes. And he said to me, Do you want to know anything else? I said, No. He went, No, not me. And we looked at each other and I said, Do you want to ask how your weekend is? He went, No. Right, great. Right. <laughs> it I, was, was good though. Yeah, I have a very similar working relationship with a client in London where it's almost become oh, a I point of, him you on holiday. Where it's almost become a point of rapport building how little social interaction. Don't ask him how he is. Neither of us ask each other how we are at all. That's one of my pet peeves in modern conversation though. There's no there's you, none are you walking to I mean I don't really go into Starbucks, but you walk into a shop, hello, how are you? Well you don't care, so I'll ask me. We That's, don't that's what I want to say. We don't, but we're very effective in our dealing. But we've got that effective 
that we're both now sort of laughing as we talk at how effective we're being. Right. Because okay. it's sort of got to a point where it's both we're both so brusque and so sharp on it that it started to get really silly. Here's what I think we should do. If anyone was it, well, I think we should we should discount social interface for a week. <laughs> Let's all see how we get on. We'll go down well with my desk in healthcare for see that. That'd go down badly. My boys would be alright with it. Do you reckon? No. And your desk? No. What, what, time record, how much time do you spend on social briefings? Maybe if there's, a, if there's somebody out there that sells some sort of reporting software where they can take apart the sentence of the actual I'm words. going to time record next week. Throw my pen away. Next week, I'm going to time record how much time I spend talking about golf. Talking shit in order to build a bit of rapport. Well, that's a separate conversation. Talking about somebody's golf is a terrible way to build rapport. Yeah, absolutely. But in reality, everybody does a bit of social prefacing. I don't. When I walk in the office in the morning, you don't talk to me. No, the other day I came in, you came in, <laughs> I just completely blanked you funny. for about three hours, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah funny. Absolutely. Anyway, that chapter, I've got to say, the Drucker thing, I'm getting more into this book, actually. Yes, and I've got a funny feeling about this book, which is on multiple readings, it will grow. Like what, like the Game of Thrones? Yes. I think there's layers in this book. I, I'm. I, I, I've read a couple of books. If you, I'm back on Tim Ferriss again here. If you read Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans, um, where he interviews a load of great leaders about them, what is their top reading list and all that, this book gets mentioned repeatedly by people. And I think the, what frustrated me at the start with it was the obvious... Well, it's called The Effective Executive, but it's not The Effective Communicator. No, but what frustrated me initially about it was the almost facile simplicity of some of the points. But actually, they go a lot deeper, and they are all incredibly valid. So, this book is currently staying on my shelf. I'm enjoying it. Uh, so, let's wrap up for this week. Next week, we'll do chapter four, shall we? Yes, let's. Yeah. So, that's the end of Book Club for another week. We've got a few technical problems. Uh, we're waiting for our suppliers in America to send us a new kit. Um, so, this week, we've been a little bit patched up. We're on it. Uh, we will get our production values back up again over the next week. Next week, I'm afraid we're going to have to close the blinds and put some uh, lights on. If you like what you're seeing, hit the like button, hit the smash button, hit the share button. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. See you. Thanks very much. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.